0: Hi, gang. Morgan and Isabel here to share. We are looking for a new member for the Woe team to help us edit and cut episodes.
1: If somebody you know or you yourself has experience with editing podcasts or even music and is interested in adding us to your portfolio, please reach out. Email woemansmail at gmail.com with the subject line editor pretty basic understanding of sound editing software is a good starting point.
0: Yeah we want this to be mutually beneficial meaning we'll be able to offer some compensation for your time and are open to supporting any creative goals you have and see how we can work together.
1: Again email womance that's w-h-o-a-m-a-n-c-e mail at gmail.com with the subject line editor.
0: Mail as in mail a letter not mail as in mister. (laughs) Looking forward to hearing from you. I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabel. And this is Romance. A
1: podcast about
0: romance novels. About grandparent vacation homes. About Howard University. About post-World War II historicals for the first time. About the friends we meet in college. About that Star Wars thing where everyone has to be related to everyone else to be relevant to the story.
1: About meddlesome grandmothers.
0: About meddlesome women. The villainy of women. The villainy of women.
1: About birth control question marks? About the
0: Vietnam War. Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm. About finding the strength inside of
0: yourself to love. About what even is a marriage. But mostly, it's about that first thing. Uh, Romance novels. (laughs) And
1: ourselves.
0: This week, we are discussing The Ties That Bind by Brenda Jackson. Do you want me to read the back of the book? Yes, please.
1: It all started in college, in the turbulent 60s, when Randolph and Jenna became lovers. Randolph knew the moment he saw Jenna Haywood that he had to make her his. But the path to love is not an easy one. His wealthy grandmother Julia disapproves of the match, and unbeknownst to him, his brother's seemingly docile fiancé has a few plans of her own that she would like to set in motion. Betrayal and devastation lurks in unexpected places and tests the bond they believed was unbreakable. As they struggle with love and passion, secrets and lies, the question is, is love enough to help them see each other through the storms that await them ahead?
0: Uh, Apparently, uh, love is not enough. You need the constant and unconditional support of everyone who surrounds you.
1: As is true in every good family saga.
0: Yeah, so this book is really interesting. So I found this book just uh, cruising on Goodreads, got a Goodreads wreck for it, and thought this sounds really interesting. It sounds like a pretty influential work by Brenda Jackson, who's a super influential romance novelist. This book came out... November 9th, 2002. That makes sense because the third book takes place in 2002 and is described as present day. So probably could have figured it out that way. (laughs) But this book is actually divided up into three books. Three discrete romance novels. Our first story takes place in the 1960s, mostly at Howard University, when our two central characters, our hero and heroine, Randolph and Jenna, meet and fall in love. But then they have a tragic love story. The second book takes place in the 80s and is about their second chance romance. And then the final book takes place in 2002, aka present day. It involves the love story between the daughter Jenna had prior to their second chance romance and the son Raymond had prior to his reconnection with Jen. Well, it's complicated. But Randolph's son and Jenna's daughter, not with each other, fall in love. Step-siblings. Yes. <laughs> and, and those are the events of as well as like tying up all the other loose ends which are basically affirming that the villain of the story was truly villainous, unforgivable.
1: Where do you want to jump in?
0: Well, I want to talk about who I think is truly the central character of this book, and that is Angela.
1: Mm, Okay. So
0: our hero, Raymond, comes from a well-to-do... Randolph. Randolph. Comes from a well-to-do black family and attends Howard University, and his grandmother feels strongly that he should basically be in an arranged marriage, or his older brother, Ross, should basically be in an arranged marriage with this woman Angela who's from another well-to-do black family and attends a different all-girls institution. We then meet Angela. I think chapter two is Angela. So chapter one we meet our heroine she meets our hero at a house party in college. It's very moving. And then we go to Angela. Her college roommate is saying like, well, since you're a descendant of Frederick Douglass, like they'll never give you anything lower than a B in one of these classes. So I don't know why you try, try anyways. Then we find out that it's not because she's a descendant of Frederick Douglass. It's because she's having an affair with the dean of the university who is a family friend. And we also find out that this dean of the university rents her out kind of for sexual favors with other people. And I know what you're thinking, like, wow, this sounds like uh, sexual assault. But all of this is experienced through Angela's perspective and she's, at worst, indifferent at best, super into all of it. Mm -hmm. Angela's problem is that she's actually in love with Randolph, or she thinks she's in love. She's certainly enamored and obsessed with him. I think obsession is the right word to use. But she's betrothed to Ross. What a problem. So she's got to figure out a way to get rid of Ross and then acquire Randolph without upsetting their grandmother mother, Julie, who is, you know, the puppet master. One night she gets so turned on thinking about Randolph that she goes cruising the college campus for any man. Any penis. <laughs> any penis at all. And then sexually assaults a security guard, meaning the security guard asks her why she's out late. And she just gets on her knees and undoes his pants and starts fellating him. And then he has sex with her. It was pretty shocking. It's interesting that Angela's sex scenes actually are the most corporeal. Like, they give the most specific details about body parts and things. The sex scenes that are very romantic- between characters who we are supposed to like tend to be like things are described as impossibly passionate, a burst of heat. Whereas like when we get sex scenes from Angela's perspective, you understand like the feeling of like fingers going inside and things like that. It's much more specific. It's really interesting.
1: Yeah, legs wrapping around, tongues, where tongues are. Yeah, Angela's sex scenes are incredibly body forward. And because many of her sex scenes are transactional, whether or not it's like a sexual transaction or like a transaction for an endowment for the college via the dean. They, they are absent the emotions that uh, Randolph and our uh, main character, Jenna, have in their sex scenes, which...
0: We also have sex scenes between Lee and Noah, who are an ancillary couple, and then later on sex scenes between Trey and his stepsister.
1: So I do think that's super interesting. I also think like having a sex scene right out the gate in chapter two was a total surprise for me. And the fact that it's our villain or villainess was also surprising to me because I, I think the book wants me to see something in her sexuality as villainous. But like, yeah, it's so titillating that that wasn't part of her villainy for me.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. Like the book is very much look at her bad person while she's having sex and she seems like at worst like a victim in her sexual encounters but really like at base level it seems like she's autonomous in her selections of sex partners and there is this weird thing where like in the current day her son Trey is having sex with this other woman named Marvis and the book does have like a full sex scene. Once again I remember like in my mind's eye I can recall it being more bodily than the other more specific and more sensation focused rather than emotion focused as his sex scenes with his stepsister are later on. I should probably quit saying in her his stepsister. The book is like non judgmental of the woman he's having sex with but it is judgmental of the relationship that they have with each other it's almost like a woman who would seek out sex with a stranger has to be this like like the way she seduces him is she's so she's taken to a family dinner Angela Trey's mother in book three wants him to connect with this woman she's trying to set up an arranged marriage basically at the end of the dinner they're left alone and she's like I just use men for sex and then she opens up her legs and she's been wearing a dress with no underpants to a family dinner party which fine like you know if no one's gonna know about it but it felt like the book was like can you believe it she probably never wears underwear and then also like that's your come on I think it's right
1: to say that the book is making us think things about women who are sexually in charge of themselves rather than being sexually overcome by their emotions like you can't want sex for wanting sex and be a good person but you can want sex with someone you love and have sex out of wedlock like this is like, yeah, there's plenty of sex in this book. Lots of couples are having it out of wedlock. I wouldn't say that, it, like, it's conservative in that way.
0: Well, the couples who like end up together are ha- like the people who are having accepted premarital sex end up having acceptable postmarital sex.
1: Yeah. Totally.
0: There's also that thing where our two main characters, Jenna and Randolph, why do I want to change his name? Every time, I think it's because his brother has an R name and I can very clearly think of Ross, Mm -hmm. but like I wanted to say Robert that time.
1: Is it easier to go by Rand? Everybody calls him Rand, including his brother and like all of his close emotional intimates, with the exception of Jenna, who calls him Randolph and his grandmother. Who calls him Randolph.
0: Rand, yeah, let's look. Let I'm gonna try to think of him as Rand. And we'll see where that gets me. So Rand, he before he has sex with Jenna, he writes in his family Bible that they're committed fully to each other, right? And then they have sex beside a pond.
1: But they've been doing hand stuff this whole time. Like he knows the dimensions of her nipples. It's not like they have sex beside this pond and haven't done anything else. Like there's been lead up to this.
0: Sure, but I think like the book is very clear about like this is acceptable sex with the person who you're going to die with.
1: Yeah, it's like intention. Yeah. Like the intention of the sex matters. And that like the sex has to have an intention rather than is just like a physical release.
0: And that intention has to be true love. Right. Which is typical for a romance novel. It is atypical for a romance novel to insist on contrasting it with someone who's just having casual sex.
1: It was hard because I understand Angela as the villain of this piece because she does do bad things and I'm sure we'll talk about them. I understood that this book was trying to get me to understand her villainy through her sexuality and I didn't because the facts that we have on the page as you have already said at baseline she just seems to want sex and it has choices and at worst she's a victim of other people using her and like that makes Angela sad that like we should feel bad for her in those instances but the book
0: never wants us to feel bad for Angela no the book even goes so far as to have this like ancillary villain who does get a a redemption arc and that's grandmother Julia who has been forcing Ross and Angela together and forcing Rand to end up with this other woman as well and then after Jenna and Rand marry at the end of book two grandmother Julia gets a redemption arc and then at the end of book three When they find Ross's long lost daughter, she is further redeemed and Angela is further disparaged and then committed, which is wild. So Angela's first act of evil in book one, Angela is engaged with Ross. Ross enlists in Vietnam rather than getting drafted, correct? Right, because he graduates Howard
1: law school and so he doesn't have the academic deferment anymore but since he is a graduate with a college degree he'll enlist as an officer which he does and goes to NAM in 1966.
0: And his other friend who also just graduated law school I think he enlists on purpose because he has four years. Was Ross not
1: They both enlisted on purpose but Noah enlists in the Air Force and Ross enlists in the Marines which is like frontline versus support.
0: So Ross ends up meeting a woman in Vietnam and marries her secretly and she's pregnant and then he dies and then they lose track of his wife. Angela is unaware of this secret wedding when she finds out that Ross is Dead. She goes to visit Rand. Rand is in a drunken stupor of his grief. She then doses him with speed, which apparently has memory affecting effects. Yeah. And like in a, you know, chemically altered state, he thinks that she is Jenna and then she has sex with him.
1: And then Jenna comes in to comfort Rand, who's just lost his brother in Vietnam, sees them in na- naked in flagrante delicto and wakes him up just to leave him
0: writes him a letter and they do have a couple of encounters afterwards at his uh brother's funeral
1: And everything would have been okay if she would have forgiven him for the altered state. He was really fucked up about it. He tried to explain. He didn't know how to explain. We know as the audience that he's been drugged. And then Angela announces that she is pregnant with Rand's baby, that she was a virgin when they had sex, which we also know isn't true. And that because he was so grief-stricken and she was so grief-stricken, she couldn't say no, was overcome. They had sex and now she's pregnant.
0: So that's Angela's arc in book one. In book two... Angela and Rand have divorced, but she refuses to acknowledge it. And that's pretty much it. And then Rand reconnects with Jenna. They decide to get remarried. And out of fear of losing her son, it seems. Angela starts lying to her
1: son with Rand. Trey.
0: Trey. That his father doesn't want to see him. She, we also discover in book three that she told him that the reason for their divorce was that he had an affair with Jenna. Even though we know that Angela was the one having an affair with Harry. And also multiple other people. Yeah, because she's insatiable. She's a bad person.
1: Not only is she insatiable, but because... Rand has felt tricked and can't be with the woman that he loves even after she'd forgiven him for having sex with Angela in an altered state he says I'm never going to have a sexual relationship with you Angela even though we're married I will be with you for the sake of this child that we must be parents to together and so again I know that the book wants me to understand Angela as villain as insatiable but like she's married to a person who will not have sex with her so then she starts sexually assaulting him in the Night, yeah. <laughs> it's just like, and the book is like, well, I was gonna let her finish, and she was already like on my dick.
0: The only love making I ever did was allow her to perform oral sex on me, and it's like jeepers creepers. That is, I feel like you're also complicit here, but the book doesn't make us think that. That's just like, of course, he did her a favor. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Wasn't gonna push her off. Yeah, it's bad to interrupt them.
0: Yeah, and then in book three. We find Ross's long-lost daughter. She's a doctor. She produces a document that was supposedly signed by Grandmother Julie saying that Ross's family would not claim her as their child. Well, it turns out it was signed when Julie was impaired from a stroke. And who was handling her paperwork at the time? None other than Angela, who then (laughs) is revealed to be the worst villain imaginable. And after this revelation... Trey goes home to his stepfather in California and is like, we need to have mother committed. And a psychiatric analysis determines that, yes, she is insane and that she needs to be held. For her own good. For her own good. And thus, Angela's reign of terror has ended around the time that Trey gets married and his own mother doesn't attend his wedding. Uh, Trey marries his stepsister.
1: So that's, I love that we have begun with Angela rather than either of like the progenitors of this family saga, uh, Rand and Jenna.
0: She's the constant, the villain never changes in the book even though the hero and heroine perspective does shift.
1: Absolutely, and I think that as both Mechanization and obstacle. Angela functions great. And she's yeah. also deeply intriguing because when we first meet her in chapter two and she's obsessed with Rand, I was like, why though? He's handsome, but not any more handsome than the man you're engaged to, his brother Ross. He's nice, but not any nicer than Ross. And he's always in Angela's mind being compared to Ross. And Ross is always coming up short, but we're not sure why. She doesn't know Rand. She
0: doesn't. We're never given a reason why.
1: Right, and so that was incredibly intriguing to me throughout the book, where I'm like, why are you spending all of this time and energy and all these really villainous acts drugging people, lying, falsifying documents?
0: She also leaves a paper trail and tells her best friend Kathy everything. Also, they do speed for fun in the 60s, and I'm pretty sure women did speed in the 60s to lose weight. Yeah. Like, that's why it was invented.
1: <laughs> yeah, the first iteration of Fenfen.
0: Yeah. Also, I've never... Been drunk and on speed, but it seems weird that it would make you hallucinate.
1: I just like that part. I was like, okay, this is happening. Like, but yeah, like, if this is how we're going to explain it, okay. Okay, fine. Yeah. So the structure of it is in these three acts 60s, 80s, present day. And the only constant that we have, other than Jenna and Rand's love for each other, is Angela's villainy.
0: Well, and it, I think, like, it's an obsession. Like, mm-hmm. there are these other storylines, like Johnny getting arrested for murdering an FBI agent when he was involved with the Black Panther Party. That's resolved in book two, introduced in book one, resolved in book two. The relationship with between Jenna and Rand resolved at the end of book two introduced in book one like the constant storyline is Angela being evil and like the way the book describes her like performing oral sex it's like she's rubbing her hands together preparing for her evil deed like a it's like a super villain development story like now she knows she learned how to have oral sex from this guy and now she's going to use it against people
1: absolutely like the devious femme the the monstrous feminine yeah she is so to have her as Uh, sort of femme fatale in dichotomy with all of the other women of the book from lee who has an incredibly monogamous and fruitful loving relationship with noah and jenna who is basically a saint from beginning to end the other thing that this book did that i thought was interesting is it brings up a lot of discussion about class and colorism which is part of grandma julia's Villainy and like her lack of understanding uh, about why Rand could love Jenna. Who is a darker complected woman and also comes from a working class background. Her father is in the Teamsters Union and her mom is a cook. And Angela is extremely light skinned, which is part of book one especially, which takes place in the sixties.
0: Yeah, and it, it it does make this point about colorism, and it talks about how she feels uncomfortable being in a community of light skinned women, and it, it specifically addresses the fact that black men sought out light skinned women um, as wives in order to be more upwardly mobile and grandma Julia points out to her that with her background and also her appearance she is going to hold Brand back and so she should let him go. Um, and she doesn't do that. There's a lot of interesting discussion around the history of the civil rights movement. And in the beginning of the book, our character, our two main characters agree on the fact that the Black Panther Party is too extreme. But by the end of book two, identify with the Black Panther Party's goals because they have this friend who went to California to join the Black Panther Party. So he goes to Oakland, Johnny, and we get letters from Johnny, and he meets up with, we have another uh, bad girl who is redeemed, but she has to go through like, like an extreme gauntlet of suffering her name is Ellie she is the slutty roommate of Lee and Jenna, our two main characters.
1: Who's come to Howard to get her MRS very
0: specifically. Yes. And she finds a man that she wants to get her MRS from. She has unprotected sex with him. He moves to California. She goes to meet him and be like, I'm pregnant. Let's get married. And it turns out he's already married to someone else. So she ends up unhoused. Um, She's working at McDonald's. She has been humbled by the experience. So Johnny saves her and we discover through letters from Johnny like this he's used as this lens to talk about like the development of the Black Panther Party this book says that the Rainbow Coalition was established in California that's not true the Rainbow Coalition was started by Fred Hampton in Chicago Illinois so there are weirdly like historical inaccuracies in the book and it's kind of one of those things where it makes me weary of the other information like it's not necessary to the plot point that the Rainbow Coalition was Established in um, California. There's so much specific detail and so much like current events used as signposts in this text that whenever I read something that was not in fact true, I was confused by it and I became fixated on like why has this been moved and like what's its significance, but there is none. I think the Johnny stuff
1: was interesting because it is like an interesting tangent that serves our main characters, Jenna and. Randolph in their political move but for that to happen for them to like understand it for them to make the move from 1963 to be like oh man the Black Panthers are too radical for them then in 1981 to be like they were right Johnny has to be imprisoned for 14 years for a crime that he didn't commit and we learned through his letters that Herbert Hoover planted his like this gun that he Johnny didn't have and his fingerprints weren't on it but like that's how he's tried by an all white Jury whose gender makeup was eight dudes and four women. Yeah, and it was details like that where like is Johnny a real person? Should I be looking this up? But there were plenty of people that the in the Black Panther party that the FBI set up in very similar ways. And one of the refrains in Johnny's letters that I think sort of becomes a really important drumbeat and echoes back into Angela is like, "Don't believe everything you hear." Like they're trying to set us up. Don't believe everything you hear. Don't believe everything you hear. Which also is something that Rand tells Jenna.
0: It's wild, but like the use of the Black Panther Party actually serves like a narrative function in order to bring the romantic leads back together. Johnny runs out of appeals. And so she's like, we've got to reach out to a high powered lawyer and her friend, is like, why not this guy who is Rand? And so she's like, Okay, I bet I can convince Rand to do it. How he says, like, it's enough for her to tell him that Johnny is innocent, which probably wouldn't hold up in court. But yeah, it's kind of remarkable how we have all of this like historical background that's fudged a little bit so that our hero and heroine can be brought together by this by the FBI, a very real problem, which was the FBI framing members of the Black Panther Party for murders that they did not commit
1: which you know and, and not to jump the limbo line here but like that's kind of my weirdest part where it's like that Angela is so ruthlessly our villain yeah yeah when our main characters live in a time of structural villainy like like the FBI is framing your friends
0: well I mean the way Angela is framed is structural villainy in and of itself totally like a woman who has like sexual desires and like a real um, agency about her sexuality and it's not conforming to this idealized role of like a woman falls in love with you and then you're the only person she ever truly loves for the rest of her life one man forever until she dies even if she has to marry another man and have a child with it's not really that it's not the same you she is basically your virgin forever you know
1: stamped on the heart
0: yeah and Angela is seen as this like foil to that like she could have sex with anybody and it's all meaningless now because she's had it so often right yeah and so that's a really good point that like this book is surrounded and set amongst all of the structural villainy but then chooses to be structurally villainous to its villain is pretty interesting. It's a book of a lot of, and like the fact that this book is pretty rigid about sexual politics is pretty interesting because it's also rigid in its structure. Yes. Every paragraph begins with a topic sentence. It was incredible to me. This would be a book that you could, like, if someone was having a hard time writing anything I would be like, if you just make an outline of one of these chapters <laughs> because it's so clean and specific and like structure, structure, structure. It's plot, plot, plot.
1: The verbs are really close to the actors who are performing those actions. The verbs themselves are often very good. This book is, yeah, in that way it's very exciting to read even when you're in a very like thoughtful, meditative spot where like they're just looking at each other Yeah, and it's still like the structure of the sentences themselves crackle and sizzle in ways that are really, I think much more active than sometimes the scenes in which the characters find themselves in like sitting on a couch talking to each other but they're not talking they're like snapping back and forth and all this other stuff it's it's really good brenda jackson is an excellent writer
0: yeah exactly and like a very an excellent crafts person Mm -hmm. and so like even if there's like a lull in the action or you think that you're getting bored with the fact that like two perfect people falling in love like there's constant plot there's constant Mm -hmm. verbs pulling you along long it's so interesting to me that we as human beings like even like when we consume a lot of like weird literate right weird or like postmodern literature there is something about having like a highly structured way of telling a story that will always pull you through
1: absolutely and I think pulled through is some of it because some of this was a slog where it's like I don't really care that Noah and Ross there's like slogging through finals in law school. I'm like, I don't care about this textbook that they're lugging, except like I don't feel bored. And so I don't want to skip anything. And this is quite a long book. And so to feel both compelled and motivated to read the whole thing was really interesting to me as a reader experience, because as you say, Brenda Jackson is such a craftsperson. It also did this weird thing where it's like, I would be excited to read about Angela. (laughs) like where is she again like oh what is she doing and like how is she like twisting her mustache
0: yeah (laughs) her mustache her horny mustache
1: even in the details of the most ancillary characters like Rand has this secretary when he's this high-powered lawyer in the 80s and she's like her irritation with the ex-wife Angela is helpable. And she even has this really great thing where he's like, she's my ex-wife. Say that she's my ex-wife. And she's like, I did. I reminded her twice. <laughs> like, It's so good. Also, Brenda Jackson just like lets a joke stand. So regardless of the fact that she's writing about two saintly people who saintlyly love each other and have, find all these obstacles, like Rand and Jenna are kind of boring because goodness is boring to read about in those ways. But even reading their love isn't boring because the sentence structure themselves is so interesting.
0: Yeah. Do you think she went so hard on Angela because she went so soft on Rand and Jenna?
1: That's such a good question. Like, if you can't see the faults of your main characters, like, what are you going to do with them? Yeah, because goodness, is, as, as you've said in other episodes, it doesn't make good TV. And it doesn't. Yeah. They're just such good people.
0: Yeah, and they keep doing the right thing. But them being good and Angela being so bad, it, it does set the table for a more compelling love story, I think which is between Trey and his (laughs) stepsister, Haywood. Haywood is in a long-term relationship with a man who is uh, significantly older than her and has expressly said, I do not want to get remarried, but she really wants to get married and have babies. And she's sticking it out. And Trey is being promiscuous, just like his wicked mother. Evil witch of a mother. And he also is like, hateful of Jenna who is perfect because of lies he's been told by Angela right everything comes back to Angela well they say that Haywood has a wild streak from her from her father who is a Parisian photographer yeah and so I think that's like so remarkable that even like the faults with our two like our final boss romantic heroes are attributed to the other partners <laughs> that our original heroes were with I was gonna say like I don't know how they make Angela responsible for Haywood, but Haywood problems, but they don't. They make Haywood's father responsible for Haywood's problems. That's a good point. Even though, like, Haywood's father is is understood as a good person, right? He's a man, so it's actually really hard for him to be a bad person. I think we can all agree.
1: (laughs) But he was an artist. He
0: was an artist. Yeah, and so he's been told all of these lies by Angela, and so he thinks that Jenna is a bad person and he's so mean to her and she's so unendingly kind to him right because she's perfect.
1: Super patient.
0: It's like even the rectification of the other villain and grandmother Julia serves only to make Angela a bigger villain and I wonder why they go so fucking hard on Angela. Like why this text does that.
1: I think in some ways that's what makes Jenna and Randolph feel fairy tale-like and like less
0: real. Yes, that's a really good point. Because
1: Cinderella can only shine as brightly as she does because her stepmother is so terrible and her stepsisters suck so much.
0: This is such a fairy tale structure. Yeah, three acts with their kids. (laughs) Yes, and the evil stepmother and grandmother Julia and the evil stepsister and Angela, the tragic hero and Ellie and Johnny, who of course ended up having a thing.
1: Of course. And, you know, even the ancillary characters that come to help the main couple like Lee and Noah and even Ross to a certain extent before he's tragically murdered in Vietnam.
0: Well, Ross has to have an unborn mystery child who aunt, so Angela can fuck that kid over. (laughs) Like, Anna's whole existence is to, like, put a wax, like, put a rubber stamp on Angela's evil and get her committed to an insane asylum or whatever.
1: Yeah, exactly. And in that way, it's almost like a. Rather than a fairy tale, it's like a Greek myth where you have the unknown child that people have been looking for finally come to the fore and reveal the final thing at the end, like Perseus.
0: One thing I noted, it's very Shakespearean.
1: Yeah, it's so, so well structured in terms of its acts, but because of its scope, because of its saga, because of the like biblical nature of our villain. Yes. It is Shakespearean. It is Greek. It is like, this is pulling on all of Western storytelling's heavy hitters. Like, Brenda Jackson is pulling the threads.
0: Yeah. They are all tied together. And so I think the historical contextual details, whenever they slip up, because it's such a tight structure, it's really distracting.
1: It's noticeable.
0: Yeah. So I have two weirdest parts. Okay. One of my weirdest parts... Gets to that point. Gia is Ross's wife who he meets in Vietnam. And we find out that she had a Vietnamese mother and a Japanese father. At the end of the book, though, we discover her last name, which is Wang Fu, which is a Chinese name. I guess
1: that could be explained away by the, the fact that she was supposedly adopted by her maternal aunt, who maybe married a Chinese person. No,
0: this is Gia's last name.
1: Oh, not honest. Okay.
0: Yeah. No, that doesn't yeah. make sense. And then we have all of this discussion about like colorism and why it's a problem and it affects our perfect heroine, like in this really deep way. And we have this awareness but then whenever the family meets Gia's daughter, Anna, the child of Ross, they have to make a point about her having slanted eyes. This book is aware of only certain structural violences and then feels like others don't exist or are fine. Like <laughs> calling someone a Japanese or a Vietnamese person by a Chinese last name, that carries a lot of imperial violence. It seems like you just picked out a name which is making a monolith out of asian people
1: yes there's also truly a question about like having a japanese father and a vietnamese mother who would have had you in the 40s and it's like well that means that that's like japanese imperialism as it's moving through world war ii as they they took the asian continent so like that's probably not great i noted that where i'm like do we understand this person as like having a heritage that is bad then because of war violence that is the now being visited upon her country in the 60s? Okay.
0: It's just, it's like a lack of care and consideration, right? Like there's a real lack of care and consideration towards Angela and the fact that like maybe this isn't that, you know?
1: Or like how can an 18-year-old in college really reliably, and as we understand it, give consent to the dean of the
0: college? Yeah, and the other thing is, is like, okay, maybe like, the fact that she's committed to a hospital at the end for psychiatric evaluation, right, is a form of, like, empathy. But not really, because saying someone, like, I know that she has, like, an extreme and Baroque um, attitude towards sex, but it's like, nobody cares until she, like, signs, a pa- forges the grandmother's name. No one gives a fuck about her weird thing about sex, the fact that she just gobbles a security guard's penis when she's 18 and he's 50 right nobody cares until this other thing happened that's the break that's the rub and uh my other weirdest part is that early in the text the book asserts Angela's thinking about she's about to have sex with the dean of the college and she's like I wish he would kiss my sex again because he's done that before and I really liked it And he tells her, I probably won't do that again, but you should have sex with this white guy because white men perform oral sex on women. It's not really something black men do. And in fact, Angela is the only person who performs and receives oral sex throughout the book.
1: Yes. I was 100% waiting for Perfect Man to go down on Perfect Jenna. And the fact that it literally never happened is shocking to me.
0: No, she never went down on him either.
1: That's a good point.
0: She had multiple cresting orgasms when they were having penetrative sex but um yeah no oral sex to be had and the fact that it was like oral sex is racialized super early on and is only wielded by the villain weird I don't even I don't even know what to make of it I like
1: (laughs) it's like straight up weird I also noted that in the text where I'm like oh wait okay why like all right And she's excited then to have sex with this white dude who's going to go down on her.
0: One time I heard a white guy in a bar say that he did not perform oral sex because black guys don't have to. And I thought it was like the most ridiculous thing I'd ever heard. I was like, I don't even know where to begin or end with that. That's just racist. And so to read a romance novel with black central characters written by a black author that also asserts that only white people perform oral sex was I wasn't expecting it. That attitude I thought had only existed in this one really misinformed white guy's existence. It's weird to find a stereotype, (laughs) a new stereotype in the year 2021 at the age of 30. Agreed.
1: My weirdest part was the willy-nilly-ness of birth control. Like, sometimes they're using condoms, and sometimes they're not, and sometimes they're on the pill. But like if you take that cold medicine, you're 100% going to get pregnant, whether or not you're a good person or a bad person, based on how much sex you're having and with whom.
0: Angela is on the pill. She then gets pregnant supposedly because of some cold medicine and then she gets an abortion. Uh all of which is villainized.
1: Totally. Lee, who is not a villain, is on the pill and gets cold medicine and becomes pregnant, but it's celebrated because she's in a loving committed relationship with Noah. At one point Jenna talks about the fact that she's going to go on the pill, but then she decides to wait because she's going to spend the summer away from Rand, but then they meet up and have sex and she's not on the pill and he comes inside of her without t- oh no. This is my weirdest part. They're having sex. Oh yes. Yep, by the pond, and he's brought condoms because he wants, you know, to have safe sex, and that's cool. They they're in college, so they don't want a pregnancy, and he forgets. No, this is that's not. He does at other times forget, but he literally pulls out of her and takes the condom off without talking to her, and then puts it puts his raw penis back inside of her and comes raw. What, I mean, yeah, bare penis into her without asking her and comes inside of her. I'm like, you took it off. Here it is. It's in chapter 10. Randolph couldn't think straight. The only thing he knew was that he wanted to feel the very essence of Jenna without anything between them. In a moment of madness without thinking but reacting, he pulled completely out of her, snatched off the rubber, tossed it aside, and re-entered her in one smooth beat. The feel of her hot wetness on his sex was more profound than he could have ever imagined, blah, blah, blah. He vibrates her name and releases into her hot and plentifully.
0: Yeah, I I think it is like wild to read in a romance novel, someone actually saying that sex feels better without a condom, especially like Post AIDS crisis. Also,
1: they're they're both afraid of pregnancy and like they both know what it will mean. And like he even says later, he's like, I meant to protect you, but I couldn't stop myself. And I'm like, you could have because you literally pulled out to pull the condom off though.
0: (laughs) Yeah. This wasn't like an accident. Like this
1: was. No, it didn't like fall off.
0: This is a whoopsie. This was very much on purpose. And I.
1: My weirdest part.
0: This book has some doozies. It's, it's not unlike the book, the other book we just read, Fix Her Up, where it's this like got lots of progressive trimmings, but has like remarkably conservative ideas. I will say though, Brenda Jackson, as a craftsperson, because of the structure, Like, because the book is always moving on and always has plot points, you can do stuff like forget that he pulled off the condom. In my head, I'm like, oh, he just like accidentally. No, like that was a hundred. He pulled it off. But because like so much happens in the book, right? And I think because of the structure always pushing action, always pushing plot forward, there's not enough time for you as a reader to like ruminate entirely on these things. And so they either, like, stick in you like a lightning rod or they just fall away because of all of the other stuff that's happening. And by the way, like, other weird stuff, like, I want to remind people, like, the central final love story, like, the denouement of denouements is that a guy marries his stepsister. Incest adjacent. They're raised
1: separately, so I guess it's not as incest adjacent as fix her up, but, like...
0: But I've got to say, like, if you have to add on a bunch of stuff like, oh, but they were raised separately. Like, you're protesting too much. Time out. Like, it's, you need to realize, like, if you're coming up with all of these excuses, you feel a need to come up with all these excuses because this is, in fact, incest adjacent.
1: I also don't think we needed it is the thing because, like, Jenna and Rand having their their first love in the 60s and then their reclamation in the 80s was nice enough like why do we have to involve their children like couldn't quit while we're ahead
0: yeah it's a good book and I think if it had actually been broken up into three texts that were 300 pages each then we would have had time to maybe like Develop Angela a little bit more sympathetically, or have the love affair between the step siblings be like a little bit more of a slow burn. Even had some moments of conscientiousness and self evaluation, but yeah, I think like did we need? I I, lo- I enjoyed reading the like enemies to lovers part of the book, which is you know these two slightly more complex characters falling in love at the in the final act. But I, I see where you're coming from. I think we have a really interesting like second chance in book two that could have stood alone as an ending.
1: Yeah, and maybe developed a little more. Like they come together so quickly it doesn't even have chance to be a second chance like she comes to the office and he's like all right let's go save johnny from the bad guy fbi all right let's kiss some more and like i mean that's my sexiest part when he's like if i keep kissing you we're just gonna fall in bed together and she's like let's fall in bed together
0: all right let's talk about sexiest part
1: yeah, that I mean, that's mine, because like all of the stuff in the 60s where like someone's on the pill, but then they take cold medicine and somebody has a rubber, but they're taking it off. Like I didn't like any of that. But when they're in their 30s and they're much more adult and they've been through some things like a bad divorce and like Jenna is a widow at that point, the way that they come together after rescuing Johnny from death row and they just like, it, they just click like puzzle pieces. And that sex scene I think is while it's overburdened with emotion, that was okay in that scene. Whereas other scenes I was sort of like, <sighs> Do we have to talk about, like, how ecstasy is like fireworks? Because I'm not into that. I just want to hear about legs going around hips and, like, knees falling open. And, like, the their coming together as a second chance had more of the legs and arms and kissing tongues lead up and then a little bit of the emotional stuff at the end, which is, <laughs> is the sexiest part for me.
0: Yeah. I really, uh, this book has nice long sex scenes and I feel like in a lot of the more contemporary texts that we've read, sex scenes are usually like two pages maybe. This one really allows love making to breathe. And I think I also like really enjoyed reading it because we've read so many, like, hot and heavy, like we just finished Fixer Up, which has like guy just thinking about a woman's ass forever. This book doesn't do that. It doesn't objectify, um, it doesn't find pleasure in objectification of our heroine, right? Like, sex is this deeply emotional thing. There's a lot of buildup, there's a lot of foreplay. It's a lot of the like low glow candle kind of sex scene and it's very good to watch including like when they're young it still takes a long time but I am with you I really love the first time they have sex after freeing Johnny from prison as adults And how it it is a satisfying second chance. It might be like the only satisfying second chance. Because I don't feel like our hero Rand did anything unforgivable. In fact, I think he was pretty stand up. And I also know that the heroine had a complete choice in whether or not to go back to him. Mm -hmm. And this idea of faded love kind of carries this book through and makes things like the second chance work for me. Like, I genuinely believe they should be together. So when they come back together, it feels right. But I will say the sex scenes are very encumbered by emotion and fireworks and kind of vagueness at times.
1: Unless it's
0: angela and then it's just like
1: slapping dicks and tongues which is so weird because it's so titillating
0: yeah um slapping is uh that slapping noise is titillating and like she also has sex on the hood of a car in the winter that's pretty titillating in boston i wish there was like a happy medium between the angela sex scenes and the hero and heroine sex scenes Where we could get like a little bit more like rooted, grounded in like a physical experience of making love while still having that like sensorial like feeling overwhelmed by emotion that can happen. And it would be perfect. But I think there's like this commitment to like creating a text of like good sex versus bad sex. That is to the detriment of the sex. Not that they're not good, and I'm really glad I got to read them because I needed something like that at this point in our journey on this podcast. I was a little exhausted from like the butt stuff um, and the like slapping and, and all of that. So I'm glad I got to read it. It was a nice reprieve. But it's remarkable to me that this book isn't like a mini series somewhere.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. And in fact, Brenda Jackson just signed with someone to start producing uh, more content. In 2020, she formed a partnership with Hollywood's Bobby Smith Jr. to bring more of her books to the movie screen. So, hopefully this one will be adapted because it is it is ripe.
0: This would be a great one. It's Shakespearean, it's a fairy tale, it's It's also one that kind of uses the problems that feel very real and present in our everyday lives today from the civil rights movement of the 1960s. It takes them and discusses them in a way that adds to the texture of the story without being like here's an aside. Although this book really relied on historical asides. <laughs> My favorite was in the 80s, when she was like, Princess Diana and Prince Charles weren't the only ones hearing wedding bells in 1980-whatever. And that's in order to introduce that our two main characters are getting married. Like, some of them are a little silly, but I think, like, there's that... I, I loved seeing the characters, like, understanding of the project of the Black Panther Party. I loved watching that progress. Part of me feels, like, a little cheated that, like, this person's suffering was all for the sake of bringing these two together for us second chance but I also think like it's a way of of incorporating like the very real history like the way Vietnam worked um and functioned was clear to me like the difference between a draft and enlistment and why you would do one over the other and like and I also will say I was moved I cried at times when I was reading this book I really cried whenever she named the baby Johnetta. forget it Mm -hmm.
1: yeah I thought the even though they are indeed tangents they felt so well woven and for the characters to interact with those tangents and grow and progress as you said i thought was really lovely yeah i was swept away like i don't normally find family sagas this captivating. I'm usually bored by somebody in the generational line but I loved everybody even like the people I didn't like. They're like totally quotidian and like I kind of loved that about
0: them. They're pretty boring people was the other thing but the plot is so like the action of the story is so captivating it really pulls you through. So Isabeau, romance or a nomance.
1: This is a whoa. I was really pleased. I would definitely recommend this to people looking for something.
0: Yeah, and I was especially pleased to read something that was interesting and captivating. And the post-war, the 1960s was very much a part of the story and involved in the story and not just like... Costuming or anything like that. Absolutely, this was great. Well, man's for me as well, and I don't think we get to read like enough family sagas on a romance. And I wonder if this book was even like the cover art seems unique for a romance novel that came out when it came out. It's this interesting like collage thing, like a very early cartoon cover,
1: which seems totally inappropriate. So I wonder if like because that's the cover that I have on my Kindle, but I wonder what the original cover was and if that is the original cover.
0: With that, uh, loosen your stays, but never your principles. Mwah! Woe guacamole, everyone! Thanks for listening to another episode of Womance.
1: Womance is hosted, produced, and edited by my friend Morgan.
0: And by my friend Isabel. Our logo artwork is by another friend, Mary Reichman. You can find her on Instagram at m.reichman, spelled R E I S C H M A N N.
1: womancepodcast.com.
0: If you have an idea or just want to reach out, please email womancemail at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you.
1: Womance is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media backslash podcasts. Until next time.